last Saturday in Coway, California, I'm trying to remember if I'm saying that right, uh, there was a shooting at a synagogue. A uh, young man, a uh, 19-year-old young man, entered the, the synagogue and began shooting. Uh, I think one person was killed. A uh, couple, couple were injured, those sorts of things. But what caught my interest about that story, as tragic as it is, and, and, and obviously tragic, I think we, should, we, we would notice, is that the kid who did the shooting was, in a sense, one of us. He's a member in good standing of an Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, you may not know what the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is. That's our one of our sister congregations, and the one, the I mean, uh, denomination, and the denomination that is closest to us in our beliefs and, and culture and all those sorts of things. So close that we share a publishing house with the OPC. Uh, our Sunday school material, for example, comes out of a joint venture that we own together. That's how close we are. So in a very real sense, we can say that this kid is one of us, like us. His dad's a ruling elder in the, the OPC church there in San Diego, in Escondido, right outside of San Diego. Um, he, from all, from all evidence and, and testimonies about the church, he was a regular attender, regularly in worship each week. But yet, along the way, he got caught up in some things that led him down this path. He wrote a manifesto before his shooting that's disturbing. I, I, I wouldn't say I actually recommend you to read it, although I know some of you are curious and you'll go find it. Um, full of racist, hateful racist language regarding Jews, white nationalist propaganda. Um, but maybe most disturbing is that these things are presented alongside sentences of orthodox reformed biblical theology, clear. The kid was catechized well. And from what he wrote, believes the Orthodox Reformed religion. But yet he's at a synagogue shooting at Jews. So even though he claims to be a Christian, he says that his views which led him down this road do not come from his family or his church. He included a question and answer section in his manifesto. And he answers this question. He says, did your family cause you to think this way? And here's his answer. You can hear the tragic nature of this. He says, unfortunately, no. I had to learn what they should have taught me from the beginning. Now, the evidence is that he learned these things in, on, on the Internet, on white nationalist sites and those sorts of things. His parents, his church, the, the OPC itself condemned his actions. His church released this statement, and I decided I'm just going to read it for you. And here's what it says. It says, The atrocious crime of violence and hatred that took place at Chabad of Poway Synagogue on Saturday, April 27th, grieves us deeply and shatters our hearts. As a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we devote our lives to the love and mercy of the Lord, to all of God's beautiful children from every nation, language, and tribe. Our most sincere prayers, condolences, and cares go out to the victims, their loved ones, and the congregation of Chabad. We deplore and resist all forms of anti-Semitism, that's anti-Jewishness, uh, anti-Semitism and racism. We are wounded to the core that such an evil could have gone out from our community. Such hatred has no place in any part of our beliefs or practices, for we seek to shape our whole lives according to the love and gospel of Jesus Christ.
I, I started off this week with an intention to just make kind of a one or two minute statement at the beginning of my sermon and jump back into the Gospel of John. <laughs> As I got into what I thought I could say about this, I realized it's sermon length, not comment length. So we're going to jump into that. One of the main reasons, according to this manifesto, for this man's hatred of Jews is that he hates the Jews because they killed Jesus. Now, since we're working through the Gospel of John and talking almost every week about how the Jewish leaders are seeking to kill Jesus, I, as your pastor, need to make sure that I'm clear what I mean and clear that I communicate what I mean when I teach you about the death of Jesus. So I'll do that. We're going to get there today about who, who actually killed Jesus. What do we believe about who is responsible for the death of Jesus? But first... Let's kind of just take a step back and talk about what the Bible says about races and racism. Um, and so we're going to do that uh, by starting in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Give great attention to the reading of, of the very word of God. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our, own, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, we're going to talk about that. Let me pray for us first. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that you are the God of us, of the people of the earth that you care for us, you watch over us, you've made us in your own image. Would you teach us today from the scriptures how we should love one another? Those who are like us, those who are different from us, those who look like us, those who look different, those whose cultures are the same, those whose cultures are different, and on and on and on, that you would help us to love well our neighbors, our family, our church, our community, and everyone all the way to the ends of the earth that we would see people the way that you see people and love and honor them, that we would love because you first loved us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so the main thing we see there from Genesis chapter 1 in those, two, in those couple of verses are that all people are made in the image of God. All people are made in the image of God. We would say all people are equally made in the image of God. Notice that Genesis 1 here doesn't say that some people are made in the image of God. The good people are made in the image of God. Or the people from this part of the world are made in the image of God. Or the people who look like this are made in the image of God. Or the people who have this bloodline are made in the image of God. No. People are made in the image of God. Now at this point we recognize that at this point in Genesis that only includes Adam and Eve. But that image is passed down to all the people that have ever lived. We are all made in the image of God. Genesis 3.20, Adam, speaking about Eve, says that she is the mother of all living. We believe that all of the human race proceeded from two people who lived in the garden, Adam and Eve. They were created out of nothing. Adam created out of nothing, out of the dust of the earth. Eve created from a rib taken out of Adam's side. And that they were in the image of God. And then they had babies, and all of their babies were made in the image of God. And they had babies. All of their babies were made in the image of God, all the way down to us, who were made in the image of God. 
Genesis 9, 6 says that murder is a capital offense. And the reason that murder is a capital offense is because when you commit murder, you're killing someone who is, who, that God made, because God made man in his own image. That's what it says. The reason it's so serious is because God made man in his own image. So to kill someone is a greater offense than killing an, an animal or, or whatnot. James 3, 9 talks about misusing our tongues. And the way it talks about it, it says we misuse our tongues when we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So why is it a sin to curse others? Because we're demeaning their being, and their being is made in the image of God. And so what we learn here, and those, that's just a few verses that we could look at, at others, but so what we see here is that all people of every race and creed, of every generation and every location are made in the image of God and are to be valued as such. Therefore, for us who understand this, who are the people of God, we should speak out against violence, against people, uh, against all people of any religion or no religion at all, as fervently as we speak out against violence against Christians. We should be angry about the brokenness of this world and the evil of mankind when, as we saw in the news this week, there's a shooting like this one at a synagogue in California, or whether it's Christians who were killed while at church in Burkina Faso, or whether it's Muslims that I read yesterday are being put into concentration camps in China. All of these things should anger us. All of these things should disturb us and remind us of the brokenness of this world. And we should be moved to fight for justice for all people in every place, of every race, of every culture. Because all people are made in the image of God. In the scripture, we see it was at the Tower of Babel, where it seems up to that point there was kind of one race, one culture, one language. But at that point, because of the sin of man, working together and, and working against the will and the work and the person of God, God separated them. He gave them a curse because of their sin and separated them into the other most parts of the earth. And so people went. And, and at that point, different races began to form because different languages were formed. And so the people went with the people they spoke alike could communicate with different places of the earth. And, and their, their culture and race and, and different languages arose from that point. But the thing we can notice is that while we talk about the different cultures, the one thing we need to notice is that all cultures have things about them, whether it's our culture or other cultures, all cultures have things about them that we can commend and, that we, and, that, and things that should be condemned. And so we, don't, we can't step back and look and go, well, we're a part of a perfect culture or a better culture even. It, what we have to do is step back and say that all things, it, we could look at, at any culture on the earth and affirm some things about that culture. Maybe the way they love people or the way they deal with people or the way their, uh, you know, their ingenuity works. Or those sorts of things. We could, we could say about every culture on the earth that there's something to be commended there. While at the same time, there are things in every culture that need to be condemned because we're all sinners and all fall short of the glory of God. That's true for every culture, every nation, every language, every people, every tribe, those sorts of things. You know, we naturally tend to think of ourselves and people like us in the best light, to think of those who are different from us in a more negative light. But different doesn't always equal bad. There may be things that are in the differences that need to be condemned, just as there are things in our lives that need to be condemned. Uh, but we need to constantly be checking our hearts for bias. 
against others, uh, whether they're like us or different from us. But as we talk about all this, all this race and culture and tribes and nations and languages and all these things, there's a sense in which we can speak about there being only one race. And that's the human race because we all came, as I mentioned, from one couple, from Adam and Eve. So one family was made, and that family has spread out into the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, um, you know, we, we sing at times about how Jesus died for the human race. It, it's all of us. We're all part of that race. At the end of our days, we will be gathered in glory. All Christians from all places and all times together for one purpose for all of eternity. Revelation 7 describes the scene before the throne of heaven. Here's what John saw when he was given a vision of heaven. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud, loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So God doesn't belong to any one race, any one people group, any one nation or language or tribe or culture. God's drawing people from all of these things, all of these places, to himself, to worship him. And we'll all be gathered together on equal footing before the throne of God at the end of the age, worshiping him and singing, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. One thing that'll that will certainly be absent on that day is racism. For, for all sin will be banished from the new heavens and the new earth. All right, so that's sort of just an overview of what the Bible says about racism. We could go deeper into some of those issues. Um, and if you've got questions about those things or struggle with some of those things, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to work through uh, some of this stuff and if there's, there's stuff going on in your lives or, or whatnot that you feel like we need to work through, we can, we can definitely do that. But since a lot of this man, this man, when we, as we think back about the shooting last week, since a lot of this man's anger at the Jews comes from this misunderstanding about who's responsible for the death of Jesus, let's take a few minutes to look at what the scripture says about this, about who is responsible for, for Jesus' death. There's a list um, of people that we can run down, or people groups even, as we think about the, who's responsible for the death of Jesus. The first is a man named Judas, right? Who was one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus with a kiss and then delivered him over, in a sense, to the authorities who were seeking to kill him. And so there's a sense in which we can say Judas is partly responsible for the death of Jesus. We could also say that the Roman government is partly responsible for they set aside justice in Jerusalem to appease an angry crowd uh, choosing to execute an innocent man. And then they put him to death. And so we could say that the Romans are partly responsible for the death of Jesus. We could say that the crowd of Jewish pilgrims visiting Jerusalem for Passover, some of them are partly responsible for they demanded the release of Barabbas and demanded the crucifixion of Jesus. And so there's a sense in which they are partly responsible for the death of Jesus. We can obviously say that the Jewish leaders are partly responsible, for it was the chief priests and the elders that persuaded the crowd to choose Barabbas on that day. 
It was some of the religious leaders who had been seeking to kill Jesus since the first time he cleansed the temple and confronted their sinful ways. They had been seeking. Remember, we just saw in the last few weeks in the Gospel of John, they had set their mind towards the death of Jesus. And so we can say that the Jewish leaders are partly responsible for the, the death of Jesus. But we know that it wasn't any of these groups in totality. There were those among these groups that weren't responsible. We think that Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in the night and then later on helped bury Jesus, had probably become along the way a friend, if not a believer in Jesus. And so we know he still remained among the Jewish leaders, but was not one who we think was actively seeking to kill Jesus. And so we wouldn't say that all the Jewish leaders even were seeking to kill Jesus. There were others like the Roman soldier who watched Jesus die and then proclaimed, wow, it's seeing the way that Jesus died. He said, this man must be the son of God who participated in his death, but then seemingly repented even quickly of his actions. There were probably others like that who participated, but then repented upon understanding what they had done. You know, as a pastor, a Bible teacher, I can do a better job of being careful what I say. Because it's simple statements and sermons teaching that the Jews killed Jesus, which has led some people along the way to anti-Semitism. When a preacher says over and over, well, the Jews killed Jesus, well, the Jews killed Jesus, well, the Jews killed Jesus, you can see where at some point someone maybe gets irritated enough to go, well, the Jews are all evil and need to die. Now, that's not the way to go. And I need to be careful that I'm not saying anything that gives that impression. It's incorrect to say in just a blanket statement that the Jews killed Jesus, implying that all Jews were involved because we know even the disciples were Jews. They didn't play a part in the role of Jesus other than running away from him in that moment of crisis. <clears throat> but we wouldn't say that that's guilt-inducing. And so we know there were Jews who didn't want to kill Jesus. So anyone who hates the Jews because they killed Jesus is ignoring uh, or grossly misinformed about the reality of the historical events and the characters that were involved in the death of Jesus. It's also illogical to hate the Jews for this reason. It's illogical to say that you love Jesus, who was a Jew, and yet hate the very people from whom he came. He came from the Jewish line, physically, spiritually, nationally. He came from the line of Abraham. Jesus is a Jew. The New Testament doesn't teach hatred of Jews. It teaches that we are to love Jews and Gentiles and proclaim to all people that they can be saved from their sin by Jesus. And in Luke 19, we see Jesus weep over the city of Jerusalem. At this point, they've rejected him. And, and his, he cries and weeps over Jerusalem because he knows there's, there's judgment coming upon them. And he cries because of his great love for her and for her people, the Jewish people. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, taught that the gospel was the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and then to the Greeks. Paul also went so far as to say that he wished that it were possible for him to be cut off from salvation if it meant that his people, the Jews, could be saved. That would be a path you would choose if it were possible. There's no hint of anti-Semitism in that statement. 
In Galatians, Paul tells us that there is neither Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. The gospel goes into all the world and transforms all who believe without any prejudice. The gospel knows no boundaries, no cultural boundaries, no race boundaries, no, no geographical boundaries. The gospel knows no boundaries. While we've talked about the various players in the acts of history surrounding Jesus' death and their partial responsibility, it's also true to say that everyone who has ever sinned is responsible for the death of Jesus. For it's sinners that needed saving, it's sinners that he came to save. Jesus would not have come, he would not have died, he would not have had to be killed if it weren't for the reality of sin in the world. But yet in his love he does come, it's sinners who deserve the punishment for sins that Jesus bore upon himself at the cross on that hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. But as we look at Scripture, we, we have not addressed where the main responsibility for Jesus' death actually lays. Peter preached a sermon to a crowd of Jews in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Here's what he says. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. So he's preaching to Jewish people. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He says, this Jesus, and then listen to this. Here's the key phrase. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he acknowledges the role that men played in the death of Jesus. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But before that, he hones in on the fact that it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The plan of God from history past was that Christ would come into the world and die for the, for the sinners who needed salvation. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was ordained by God. We see that God ordained that Jesus would die for the sins of his people. The, the thing that we know, that we should know to be true, is that it's God who is the judge who punishes sin. And it was sin that was being punished that day on Mount Calvary when Jesus died, when he was nailed to that cross. It was, it was sin that was being <coughs> nailed to that cross. And Jesus had taken our sin upon himself. Who is it that punishes sin? It's God that ultimately punishes sin. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, looking forward to this day, is clear about God's role in the death of Jesus. Here's what he said. He says, surely he, meaning Jesus, looking forward to, to the Messiah that is to come, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who put our sin upon Jesus? The Lord did. If you skip down a couple more verses, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, meaning God the Father, has put him, meaning Jesus, to grief. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
Does that mean that the men aren't responsible? No. We're responsible for our actions, but yet God is sovereign over the fact that this was his plan from the beginning, that evil men would crucify Jesus. John 10, 18 gives us a different perspective on the death of Jesus. Speaking about his life, here's what Jesus says. He says, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What is Jesus saying? One, this was the mission that God sent him on. To lay down his life and take it back up again. But two, that no one takes it from him. If Jesus had decided at the moment they were nailing to the cross, I'm done with this, this isn't going to happen, he would have stopped it. He was always in control of that situation, in every situation. He says, I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Where's the authority over Jesus' death rest? With him. With God the Father who sends him to do that, and with him who is authoritative over his own life in a way that we aren't because we're not God in the flesh. Jesus was sent by the Father for this purpose, to lay his life lay down his life that sinners would be saved. Here's how John MacArthur explains this verse. Here's what he says. He says, Do not think for a moment that anyone could kill Jesus against his will. The divine plan could never be short-circuited by human or satanic plots. Jesus even told Pilate, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Mobs tried to murder Jesus. They once sought to hurl him off a cliff and repeatedly attempted to stone him. Again and again, he simply and supernaturally passed through their midst because his time had not yet come. When the hour of Jesus' death finally did come, he knew it. Fully comprehending all it would entail in terms of the pain and agony of bearing the punishment for sinners, he nevertheless nevertheless submitted himself willingly. John 18.4 says that when the soldiers came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, Jesus, therefore knowing all things that they were coming for him, uh, coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? Implying that he was turning himself over to them. He willingly surrendered himself to them. That was his hour, the time foreordained by God. So why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus surrender himself to the authorities? Why would Jesus, knowing what is coming, lay down his life, give himself over to them? In a sense, commit himself to death. Love. He did it because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God, demonstrating his love for us, even in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent Christ to die for us. What drives Jesus to the cross? What drives him to lay down his life even when he has the authority to not go down that road? Love for sinners. Love for his people. Love for his sheep. This is a love that rightly embraced drives us to love others. Repenting of anything in our lives, like racism, that stands in the way of loving people the way that God loved us. The promise made to Abraham, the father of the Jews, when God first made a covenant with him, was that Abraham would be a blessing to who? To the Jews? 
to the people of that area. No, no. You'll be a blessing to the world. That the blessings that come through the promise made to Abraham will be a blessing that goes out to all the world, including us. We are recipients of the promise made to Abraham. And we live under the blessing of that promise. And that blessing ultimately comes through Jesus. For every person, Jew, Gentile, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. The gospel is good news indeed. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we sit and think about these things, would you help us to deal honestly with ourselves? To ask ourselves honestly whether there's racism or a lack of love for any of our neighbors and dwelled in our own hearts. And that where we see it, that we would be at work repenting of that, uprooting that sin, asking you and trusting you to uproot that sin and to lead us in righteousness. The great commandment is to love you, our Lord, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Neighbors from every tribe and nation and language. Would you help us to repent where we see that's not true in our own lives? Would you help us to hate the evil that lives within us? Would you help us to pursue righteousness? To pursue reconciliation with those that we've had broken relationships with? Would you help us to be people who go to all the world, people from every tribe and nation and language, and tell them there is reconciliation available between you and the God of the universe? Just as there was reconciliation for me as a sinner to be reconciled to God, there is hope for you, for all people, that everyone who repents and believes, everyone who repents and believes, will be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us to love the people around us and help us to even go into the uttermost parts of the earth to communicate to everyone that there is hope even while we were still sinners, you demonstrated your love by sending Jesus to die for our sins. Help us to take the good news to the nations and to love our neighbors the way that we seek to be loved. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for laying, sending your son to lay down his life as a ransom to set us free from the sin that entangles us, from the racism that lives in our hearts, from the death that consumes us at times. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to grow more and more in righteousness and love for our neighbor. It's in your son's glorious name we pray. Amen. <laughs>